Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Pick up from where we left off last week. I'm going to go, I'm going to finish up, you know, just some of the basic leadership uh, bullet points. And for those of you who are specifically looking for that, we will finish that with the most important thing, which I think is discussing both the blessing and the curse of the internet. Both are possible. Depends on how you use it. It can be the most wonderful thing that ever was because it's allowing people like us to connect all over the world. Otherwise, it would be impossible for that to occur. On the other hand, it also makes it possible for people like us to access all sorts of things for which we may not have the tools to test them out properly. And uh, so I want to finish that up. And then we're going to go into, like I said, from last week's Torah portion from Chaye Sarah, which I think is a great Torah portion for teaching the counterbalance that uh, husbands and wives have, that males and females have, that just, it shows the importance of why we were created male and female. The job could be done with one gender. I'm sure that Elohim would have created with one gender, but in him is goodness and perfection. And so in putting these two together and understanding how they work together and complement one another, I think that's where Abraham and Sarah have a lot to teach us. And in that sense, the good news is you're not arguing over whether you should keep the commandment. You're arguing over how you keep the commandment. And rather than say, hey, you know, this was my best effort. I really think we're off track here. But, you know, there are judges appointed in my day. I don't have a lot of other options. I'm just going to sit here and serve and be happy and keep studying. Maybe I haven't found the end of this yet. But the predator won't do that. And the predator won't just leave and say, hey, let me go find like kind and like mind who this is my deal breaker. So I need to find a fellowship where the people believe the same as I do on this deal breaker. They'll start to look for an Ahab because an Ahab, it doesn't matter if it's a male or female. An Ahab is somebody who has authority, except often what this Ahab will have is relational authority because there's so few legitimate appointed positions in our fellowships. They're very informal. They're very fluid. But often you will have people who exert more relational authority than they do positional authority. And so because they can't get the positional authority, the elders, the deacons, the rabbi or whatever, because they can't get those with positional authority to listen to them, they will go seek out an Ahab of relational authority because they have to have authority to do what they're about to do. And that's why I say, if there's no Ahab, there's no Jezebel. The Ahab is understood in Revelation. If you don't know there's an Ahab in Revelation, you hadn't been reading Revelation. (laughs) If there's a Jezebel, there has to be an Ahab because Jezebel does not have authority of her own. She has to ride the beast. Jezebel did not have authority of her own. She had King Ahab's authority. And so if this person comes to you, they have no authority, or they don't have enough authority to swing things their way, then they will go try to find somebody. They will find an Ahab who does have more authority or have an authority. 
they will form a relationship, persuade this Ahab that this is the way to go. And this relationship is a codependency. It's not a gender pattern because the, the positions can be reversed in terms of male or female. It's a, it's a codependency. It's not trying to tell you that one is male and the other is female in the sense that King Ahab had positional authority, it makes more sense why you would have Ahab as the king and then Jezebel as the queen working with his authority. Same thing in Revelation. If the red beast does have positional authority, and he will, then it makes sense why Jezebel will use his positional authority in order to do what she has to do. But if they can't tap into positional, they will find relational. They'll find the person that everybody respects and likes. And they will try to create that relationship or that codependency. And from there, they can begin to spread their doctrine, whatever it is that they're trying to spread. They will use that authority. And so this authority holder is going to give credence to what the predator is saying. And and that's the thing to remember. You're, You're going to have a quieter one. Your Ahab is going to be quieter. The one that has the true authority, that one is going to be a little bit quieter. And then the Jezebel figure, whether it's a male or a female, they will be doing more uh, visible actions. They will be more zealous of the two, but the one can't work without the other one. So the Ahab is just as guilty as the Jezebel. They're, they're partners in this. And if you if you want to to stop the damage that's being done, you're going to have to break that codependency because it doesn't take long for those two together to start to form incredible power within the group. And what you'll find out is if one leaves, whether they're asked to leave or they decide to leave, if one leaves, often so will the other. So authority, if you think about it, it's in a spiritual realm. Nobody can see authority. It's a concept. So we attach that to the spiritual realm. Jezebel does things in the world of action. You say, well, there's a Jezebel spirit. Yeah, that's the authority she's working under. She's working under Ahab's spiritual authority, but she's doing things in the world of action. And that's why the codependency is there. And that's why you see in in, uh, the message to Thyatira, the Jezebel wife is leading astray by teaching and practicing immorality and idol worship. It's doing stuff. It's practicing things, teaching things, acting it out. But behind her is a spiritual authority of the beast and the dragon. It's just not holy spiritual authority. So why do I say all that? It's the codependency. If you can spot it sometimes, and if you can go to the, the one who has the authority and explain this pattern to them and explain how it works. Hopefully you can break that codependency. They'll they'll realize what they've been duped into and it can be done before they have a chance to collect lots of people over to that particular side. How do you plan for it? Because you know it's going to happen. Well, the first step is no, it will happen. If you have leadership, a leadership team, discuss it with them. Tell them this is going to happen. If we're here long enough and we live long enough, this will happen to us. And once you recognize together that it will happen as leaders, then you need to agree to link arms so that if the predator does begin to go one by one to people with authority or leadership, that they'll be aware of what's happening and keep the others informed because that's the pattern. They'll they'll find the weakest link if they can. 
and and just peel them off one by one. But if you agree up front, when this happens, we're going to talk to one another. We're going to keep one another informed on what's happening. Uh, And this means you need to have regular meetings. So if you're noticing any questionable behavior, troubling behavior, and this doesn't, it doesn't have to be doctrinal. You know, sometimes people can come in off the street and if you don't know who they are, you need to keep an eye on them, especially when they're around your children or they're around your females. If they're around your females and your children, you keep an eye on any strangers. That that's just that should go without saying, but sometimes you have to say it. Those are just the easy things. Again, if the, there's a, a sense that there's some vacuum in leadership, that things are less organized as maybe a regular church or synagogue, then you might be seen as vulnerable. So you have to keep an eye on your most vulnerable members. But if you have regular meetings, then if somebody does bring a doctrinal challenge, they may not be trying to be rebellious or troublesome and so forth. They're just in that stage of their learning. But it's good to mention that it came up because if it came up with one person, then it continues popping up. You're, you're going to have to devote more energy to it. It might be procedural, right? There might be procedures within your congregation that you need to communicate on. If something's not working well, rework it. But the thing to remember about these doctrinal challenges is the harder it is to give a scriptural answer, the more vigilance it requires. Because if there weren't more than one side to it, it wouldn't be an issue. And that's what she realizes, you know, as the sages, as the Jewish sages work through these questions, they realize, hey, there's lots of sides to this issue. And this is a valid point. And this is a valid point. And this is a valid point. And there's so many valid points. And you say, well, then what do we do? And they say, well, this is why he appointed judges, so that we can arrive at the best answer for this community. And once you've done that, once you've worked through and found the best answer for your community, whether it's challenges on the the sacred names, the calendar, the head covers, whatever it might be, keep a record of the question and its answer. You can store it in a notebook because trust me, when the new people come in, they'll run into the issue and think it's brand new and nobody ever thought of that before. So store those things in a binder. When it comes up again, you can sit down with the, the person and say, hey, you know, this comes up about every <laughs> three to four years. <laughs> so let's let's go through some of the scriptures here. And they tend not to trust you, that you, it's just such a vital thing. It's so new to them. Pride is going to say it has to be new to you too. It's very human. And uh, trust isn't built in a day. But if if they will trust you to work through these questions with them one by one, that will help build trust. And having a record means you don't have to go through and do your research all over again every time. And then also let your congregants know or your fellowship know we are going to have predators. Read them those verses where we're warned that they're going to come to our love feast and rehearse the pattern with your congregants. Say, hey, here's the pattern of a predator. Here's the pattern of an Ahab Jezebel. And so if you notice this going on and leadership is not picked up on it, please help us. And that's the thing. If, if it's going on out in the congregation and the leaders don't know about it, then they don't never have a chance to address it before it's wildfire. And then often you'll even see people who weren't that close, they'll bond together over this issue. They'll go their way. And then what they'll find out when they get out is, you know, they didn't like each other enough to begin with. And once that that issue has separated them from the main group, it's not enough to hold them together as their own congregation or fellowship. That's just a pattern I've observed. Unfortunate, 
That's why I say as much as possible, leave those bridges intact, leave the doors open and say, hey, this is our code of behavior, but you're welcome back anytime you feel like you can walk with us. Make sure that's understood unless we're talking, you know, there were certain sins that Paul just would not like, no, sexual sexual immorality, no, don't bring that in here. Idolatry, no, don't bring that in here. So, yeah, we're going to have these disagreements. That's inevitable. Until Messiah comes back, we are going to disagree on certain elements in our our congregation. But being unprepared is not inevitable. If you know the pattern, then you know how to prepare. All right. So now we're down to the question, and this is always going to come up, you know, as we're talking about congregational roles. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you exactly what the role of women should be in your congregation, all right? If you want to come visit ours, that's great. But again, we have to recognize at this point in our history, we're we're going to have different ideas and practices in place. That's even the, the way it is in Judaism at this moment. You have a range of roles that women are performing, even within Orthodox Judaism, it's changing quite a bit in the past 10 years. So I'm not going to tell you exactly. I'm just going to give you, like I say, some bullet points. And then if you're curious, if you want to know more, obviously those those sources are out there. But for women, it's just like any other topic. Your congregants will likely have a range of understanding of how women are permitted to function in your your community. Some will say they have no role. They can't even open their mouths. They can babysit and cook and wash the feet of the saints. (laughs) Others will say, hey, they're co-laborers. Who are we to limit what the Rock HaKodesh is gifted, right? That, That whole range is out there. But probably women are more likely to be questioned in terms of modesty. I've noticed that. And that can include whether they wear a head cover or not. Again, this is minchak. Your individual communities will have individual practices. So if it's not your practice to wear a head cover and somebody comes in and wants to wear a head cover, that should probably be okay. If it's your practice to wear a head cover and a visitor comes in without a head cover, that should probably be okay. Now, if that's so important to you that if they were to continue to come, that you would want her head cover, that's a conversation you need to have up front. Like I said, not three to four months into it, but all through all the ages, women are always going to be challenged more in areas of modesty. And again, that's a good thing, especially in this generation where everything is so immodest. And often, especially if you have younger women coming in, well, I'm not even going to say younger women, I've seen older women dress inappropriately too. The influences that many women have had growing up, they didn't have strong parental controls in place. And they were, in, you know, not just permitted, but encouraged to dress immodestly and kind of fed the, the idea that if a man looked at you inappropriately and you were wearing that string bikini, then he's totally wrong. And he is, he's totally wrong, but immodesty is totally wrong too. So you, you've got two offenders there. It doesn't entitle him to any sort of behavior if a woman is immodest. And this is where we should teach our young men, especially in the congregation, see the, the older women like your mom and see the younger women like your sister or your daughter. And this is even how rabbis are trained, that when they're doing you know, counseling for women, to see them as their daughters so that they will treat them respectfully. 
And the issues of modesty, yeah, we're going to have to deal with it. But if there is a standard, let them know rather than just kind of chit-chatting about how the the neckline was too low or the skirt was too high or or whatever it might be. You know, if they come a few times and it looks like they're interested in, you know, staying on with you, then then sit down and and have a and this is where you need your elder women. Uh men, I would be really hesitant to tell you to get in there and do a counseling session with a woman on modesty. Your wife needs to be with you or the the elder women. This is their role with specifically within the congregations is to guide the younger women. And so again, having a beginner's class is always a great thing. So you can cover stuff like this. And when people know what the standard is, it's much easier for them to conform to the standard. You know, if we don't permit mini skirts and they don't know that, and mom and dad never taught them that, then this is a great time. Why not have a beginner's class or a newcomer's class? Maybe not beginners, but go over some things like housekeeping. It doesn't have to be all Torah. Modesty is a, a big part of the Torah. So why not have a sit down? You know, and it, it doesn't have to be accusatory. It can be educatory. I just made that word up, I think. But when disagreements arise, women are much more likely to be called a Jezebel than a man. Because people don't understand it's a sin archetype. Like I said, it's a codependency. It's not a gender. Typically, the men will have the positional authority that is necessary, but you will see other men functioning in a Jezebel role probably even more than a woman when it comes to your doctrinal issues. It might be a woman, but it doesn't mean that this Jezebel has to be a woman when we're talking about the archetype. It'll be that person who's can't get what they need done on their own. So they they go find somebody with positional authority. It just seems to be that most often that person of positional authority is a male. That's going to be their Ahab. But whether it's a male or a female, it's a Jezebel who is tapping into that uh, authority figure. So please don't just call a woman a Jezebel <laughs> She's making trouble. It may not fit that at all. You need to be just as willing to call a man a Jezebel if he's exhibiting the behavior. And it's it's very offensive, by the way, because there is a, a sexual component that's attached to that label that is, is very often improper, unless it is proper. You know, if there is sexual immorality going around, then it probably has less to do with being a Jezebel than simply practicing sexual immorality because the Ahab Jezebel is more of a sin archetype to do with idolatry as sexual immorality, authority issues, idols versus the Holy One. A lot of congregations will fall into a, I don't even want to say it's a trap, it's just a stage where, again, the wheels have come off, everything they understood, they're trying to get some balance. And so they'll they'll adopt this idea that older is righteous, <laughs> when clearly lots of things that went on in the olden days were not righteous. Jacob marries two sisters, and then Moses says, do not marry two sisters. <laughs> so older is righteous is not necessarily the way to go. So be sure that that doesn't creep into the point that you look like, you know, you're reenacting the Ten Commandments or something. You don't need to be bound to that as a doctrine. And then if you do have women who are ministering in your congregation, you need to decide up front what those roles will be. It needs to be defined by your board or your leadership. It needs to be put in writing, if at all possible, because when people don't know what they're supposed to do, 
when they don't know what they're expected to do, when they don't know what they're allowed to do, then they're going to make mistakes. And then they're going to be accused of being a Jezebel. When actually maybe she saw the need, she's trying to fulfill the need that she sees as a woman. She's more likely to see the, the needs, the gaps where there's there's nobody doing that. There's nobody fixing that. And so if she goes in there to fill that need, and then somebody does, you know, takes offense at that and says, oh, she's being a Jezebel. She's trying to take authority that's not hers. Well, let her know what her role is and then let everybody else know. And once you define those things, you know, can you appoint a deaconess like Phoebe, like Paul did? Can you do that? Do you have an elder women's group who are there to mentor the younger women? And, and again, it doesn't have to be on like the cooking schedule. All right. That's, that's ministry, but it's physical food. Most of us are starving for spiritual food at this point. But once you decide what that is, how it will be in your congregation, then put it in writing so everybody knows what to expect. Because I think most women, if if they know what their role is, they're happy to fulfill that role. But again, it's an absence of understanding that we often have disagreements. And if we look at the patterns, you know, Deborah needed a Barak and Barak was willing to go to war with her. He trusted her that much to fulfill her role. Mordechai needed an Esther. He didn't have the authority. He needed her authority in that case. The king gives the ring to Esther and Esther says, okay, right, Mordechai, we got the ring. (laughs) Now we can write things. We can write decrees now. And so when men and women work together, you know, you get new books of the Bible. You get new passages in the Bible. And that, that can be very inspirational. Like I said, things are changing within modern orthodoxy and Judaism much over the last decade. And we're beginning to see women ordained with various titles for ordination. It's called smichut in Judaism. They're not calling them rabbis, typically. If you're reform or conservative, they will call them rabbis. But orthodoxy will not call them rabbis. There's different names for them, but they undergo the same rigorous education. And in some cases, it's even more rigorous. They become halachic experts, which means they have skill applying the Torah to practical situations. People can come to them and say, hey, the Torah says this, but practically here's my problem. And so they are ordained to address those sorts of practical situations. And they see the the advantage of this because for a woman historically, to approach a male rabbi with questions about sexual abuse, the laws of Nida, because if anything, nowadays, women are not doing anything on schedule. (laughs) I don't know if it's what we're eating or what's going on. Too much sin in the world, but it's like all cycles are thrown off. The climate's thrown off, you know, those sorts of things, even the climate in your own home. So she's going to have questions about the laws of Nida and separation at certain times, childbirth purification. And there's always questions because sometimes we confuse family purity, the things that we should be doing in our own homes with ritual purity that applies only when there is a temple functioning. And very few of us come into this walk knowing the difference and knowing exactly how to run our households. And so in in this particular instance, having the, the ordination for women who are not dumb women. They are, you know, as much halakhic experts in the Torah as the rabbis. For a woman approaching with such an intimate question, it's literally a godsend. 
It, it is very awkward to approach a man that you're not married to with some of these questions. And so, yes, that is changing. And there's there's good articles out there you can read. I pulled a few little things out of here. This is what Rabbi Daniel Buskila wrote. He says that the this precedent now for the women beginning to be trained as halakhic experts for the synagogues, he says the precedent is based on Salafichad's daughters for leading to bold halakhic rulings among certain poskim, which is these halakhic decisors, especially in the modern Sephardic rabbinic world. These rulings are instrumental sources that help create the contemporary Yoatzot Halakha. And this is one of the one of the titles that they're using, Yoatzot Halakha. The basically the ladies that are telling you in a practical way how it's done. And so who are the authorities sanctioning this? Rabbi Ben Sion Chai Uziel, who was Israel's first Sephardic chief rabbi, ruled that it is halakhically permitted to elect women to municipal councils in Israel, which is more of a secular function. Rabbi Chaim David Halevi, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, concluded that women are permitted to serve as dayanot or halakhic judges. Rabbi Eliyahu Bachshi Doron, Israel's Sephardic chief rabbi during the 1990s, authored a bold halakhic responsa that concluded, a woman can serve as a leader, even as a great Torah scholar of the generation. A woman can serve as a halakhic decisor and teach Torah and halakhic rulings. So what are they recognizing? That in ages past, you know, especially we didn't have washers and dryers, we didn't have dishwashers, we didn't have stoves, you know, inside the house. <laughs> there were so many things things that it, it took every bit of effort you had, if you had children especially, just to get through the day and keep your household. So women didn't have the time to go study like men do, but they say if the times have changed, then it's up to people to change. And there's nothing they say in the Torah to prohibit a woman from becoming a Torah scholar and then from also becoming a Torah judge which I think probably in the first century when Paul made that statement about the women guiding the younger women, that was an important statement for his day too. Because see, the older women were more likely to have their children already out of the house. To be free of, of the greater burden. Uh, was life still hard? Yes, it still was. But it would, they would have had more time. And you say, well, what about these hard verses? Like, I don't allow a woman to teach. There's other answers out there. Like I said, if, if you've been diligent to rethink through the holidays, Shabbat, what the Bible considers food and what it doesn't, even though you ran into some scriptures that appeared to disagree and you didn't do buffet, you figured out why did these scriptures seem to disagree? Did I misunderstand them in context? Was it a, a scribal edition? It wasn't even in the original copies of the scriptures. Is it a word problem? Do I need to look the word up and see how it's actually used? Because coming through an English translation, we're coming through somebody's idea of what it meant in Greek or Hebrew. So I'm saying don't avoid those hard verses that appear to preclude women from ministry other than washing the feet of the saints and being saved through childbearing. Because for everything Paul is telling you that women can't do, you find him using them to do it, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. So either he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, or we have not reconciled the scriptures properly to see exactly what he's talking about. So I've got some, I got a few sources 
but that's something you need to do your diligence on it and and make sure that as a congregation or a fellowship that that you're willing to speak into those questions because the questions will be asked make sure you're using context all your good rules of hermeneutics and complete mention all the way from genesis to revelation and that's that's how i started my study many many years ago when i i felt like i was you know gifted to teach but really the the church that that we were attending said no women don't teach they have babies <laughs> well, i couldn't have babies so when it, it when i got into torah it seemed like well let me relook at this too let me look at the scriptures that they're quoting and see if maybe there aren't some other answers and sure enough i found other contexts that seemed to disagree with those or other actions like the women actually were doing it so it was up to me to reconcile and i think it's going to have to be up to you too i'm not going to tell you what to think because like i said it's it's local minchag it's how you and your fellowship are going to engage this but here's some sources that i found pretty useful one of them is a book uh, based on academic research really hard to find there for a while but it maybe there's more copies of it out now it's called women leaders in the ancient synagogue and a lot of it is based on the inscriptions we can see that prior to some things changing during the the christian era that uh, jewish women were very much involved in their synagogues and leadership uh, one of the great books in the i think it's a trilogy that dr john gar did but his series his books are very academic and that's why i love them if you want the best answer go to these books it'll t- don't get in a hurry to read them go slow go slow check them out but the the third one the coequal and counterbalanced personally i liked god and women but for this question for this issue what about women ministering in your congregation the coequal and counterbalanced i felt like did a lot of good work academically and that's what we want a little booklet as what paul really said about women and then like i said some of this work i referenced in creation gospel workbook 3 the spirit filled family and specifically in the section entitled the cave of the couples i looked at that pattern and i found some things in scripture that nobody had ever brought out before that i could find and some of it i basically just stumbled across and that's when i realized like oh my goodness you know for what we're seeing here given to men it seems like there's women over here doing it too it's it's really strange the promise to abraham is pretty much the promise to sarah it's the the women who proclaim the good news are a mighty army uh she who remains at home will divide the spoil and there's almost an identical verse in one of the battles of king david where they left some of the weary men behind to guard the the baggage and the men who finished the battle they wanted to keep all the loot and not give anything to the men who stayed with the baggage and guarded the baggage and david said is anybody going to listen to you the one who remained with the baggage is going to divide the spoil i'm like i never noticed those were parallel verses cuz i didn't think they had anything to do with each other but you keep finding little nuggets like that it's it's interesting also you know where the the rabbi was referencing the daughters of salafahad creation gospel workbook 5 volume 4 that section on the five daughters of salafahad the little becky book is esther's mysteries behind the mask and then some of it is just talking with people uh, orthodox jews talking with orthodox jews especially in efrat where rabbi riskin who i 
But Divas recently retired. He was one of the first rabbis to begin to ordain women in his Orthodox synagogue. And so if you can find any articles where he's being interviewed and, and he gives the rationale, those are interesting. And like I say, I don't agree with every conclusion in those books above. I don't even know if I agree with my own conclusion sometimes. Uh, because you have to leave the door open and say, maybe I haven't finished researching yet. We have to always, you know, if we don't have that humility, then I think we're more susceptible to making those errors and then being too embarrassed to turn back and say, I made a mistake back here. I've, I've found a new way of looking at this. But wherever you land on the issue, just be kind to the king's daughters, because remember whose daughters they are. I thought this was an interesting picture here. It's a signet ring. And this is an excerpt from the article. It says, uh, archaeologists find woman's 2,500-year-old seal in Jerusalem. And this was from uh, 2016. It says, archaeologists digging in the Givati parking lot at Jerusalem, City of David have found two 2,500-year-old seals. Unusually, one of the seals belonged to a woman, making it an extremely rare find. Archaeologists found two seals bearing Hebrew names in a large structure built of stone blocks that dates to the first temple period. First temple, that's pretty old. Finding seals that bear names from the time of the first temple is hardly a commonplace occurrence, and finding a seal that belonged to a woman is an even rarer phenomenon, explained the researchers in a statement released by the Israel Antiquities Authority. The seals belong to Elihana Bat Gael, a woman, and Sa'ar Yahu Ben Shaben Yahu, a man. Experts believe the building where the seals were found served as an administrative center. So we can see that uh, whoever she is, this Elihana, she was an administrator in the city of David. It says, seals such as those found in Jerusalem were used for signing documents and frequently inlaid as part of a ring the owner wore. Elihana's seal is made of a semi-precious stone, and it contains the mirror writing of to Elihana Bat Gael, inscribed in ancient Hebrew letters. Additionally, they confirm that Elihana's father's name is also on the seal, which dates back 2,500 years. Hebrew University in Jerusalem says that the retention of her father's name indicates that her social status came from her original family rather than her married family. And they said it seems that Elihana maintained her right to property and financial independence even after her marriage, and therefore her father's name was retained. However, we do not have sufficient information about the law in Judah during this period, said Miskab in the statement released by the Israel Antiquities Authority. Let's say sometimes you don't get a lot of mentions of women. And when you don't have a lot of information, then sometimes we just assume that not important, non-functional. But just because there are sparser mentions doesn't mean that there wasn't something important going on, right? which takes us to the cave of the couples from last week. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. And she had to be buried at the cave of Machpelah in a city called Kiryat Arba in an area known as Hebron. And Kiryat Arba means the, the city of four, like there's four pairs there. Of course, we know about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah. 
But it's thought that the reason it was so important is because Adam and Eve were buried there, which would, would have explained why it was called the city of four eventually. And that's why I say, go back to the Torah, find those patterns there, do what Yeshua did, go back to the beginning. He went back to the beginning when he taught, he went to the Torah, the prophets and the Psalms. So whatever the Bichadashah has to say about women in ministry, it's never going to violate the foundations of the Tanakh. And so here's what uh, is said of Yeshua in Luke 24, 7, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He's saying these things that were way back then and way back when, as these things developed, they all pointed toward me. And that's the pattern and the principle that the disciples of Yeshua are expected to learn from. That's how he instructed even after he was resurrected. And so as you're, as you're doing your studies, look at Miriam as really the, once the, the fallout of the garden where Adam and Eve were both given to rule, and then we have a curse go into place where it says Adam will rule over her. Read a great article on that too. I'll, I think I may have put the reference on here if you want to look it up. Um, but Miriam, after that, we don't see so much out of Sarah, Rivka, and Leah in terms of leadership. Sarah, particularly, yes, when Abraham is told, listen to her voice in this case. But in terms of a big group, Miriam's the first example of a spiritual co leader. Micah 6 4 says, I sent Moses to lead you. Also, Aaron and Miriam. So, however we perceive her, Elohim considered Miriam a co-leader with Aaron under Moses' leadership. And again, the Torah is the seed from which all other plants and fruits can grow. So the Torah is a seed word. And so even though Miriam is the first woman to have a specific identification with a ministry role in Israel, are there even earlier seeds hinting at her role? Answer is yes. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you say, okay, wait a minute. Is it him or them? Yes. You can tell by the construction of the sentence. He created him, but him was male and female in his image. He created them. So whether we're talking about him or them, they are created in his image. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in the beginning, this scepter of ruling the creation was given to them. Together, they were to minister by upholding the word. But what about the curse? That's the question. It didn't continue that way. All of a sudden, we have a curse. Now we have man is going to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. A woman's going to have pain in childbirth. Her husband is going to dominate her. Well, how would we even answer questions about the curse? Well, the short answer is, did Yeshua die to keep us under the curse? I don't think he did. I think he died to free us from the curse of death. He died so that we could resurrect. 
and he died so that we could begin to live a resurrected life now. We don't keep on sinning. We don't keep on acting like we're cursed once we're saved. We begin to live a different resurrected life in preparation. So if men were under the curse, they didn't settle for sweating and digging in the earth with pointy sticks. No, they invented plows, they invented harnesses, and they've invented mechanized farm implements. They've invented all sorts of things to make it easier to get your bread from the earth without killing yourself. <laughs> but is the curse somehow different when we apply it to women? Do we encourage women to have as much pain as possible in childbirth? Or do we have doctors, midwives, hospitals, classes? Do we have all sorts of things to minimize the amount of pain and distress that a woman goes through in childbirth? Well, there's been changes. So why should this one thing not change? Did Yeshua die to keep us under a curse? Is that why he came? Matthew 19, 4, Yeshua answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Remember, say you're my sister. Brothers and sisters are of one flesh. They came from the same mom and dad. There's a, there's a kinship that goes with that brother and sister relationship. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to, them, to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So Yeshua is pointing them back to the garden before sin, where Adam and Eve really were kind of like brother and sister because they were one flesh, but yet they were husband and wife. There is a spiritual unity between the two. Now, in the physical realm, you don't marry brothers and sisters, but this is talking about our spiritual kinship, our closeness, how the bride and the groom can spiritually be like brother and sister, the, the son and the daughter of the same parent. And Yeshua says, go back to the beginning. If you want to understand the relationship between male and female, husband and wife, then go back to the beginning. He says, from the beginning, he didn't want Adam and Eve to separate. He didn't want them to sin and fall under a curse. From the beginning, he wanted to bless them. So why would we want to impose something different, especially once we've been saved and follow Yeshua? And Yeshua is not disputing that there is a curse on a fallen world, but he says the Torah addresses even our fallen and cursed condition within the creation. We are not to stay fallen. He wants to save us. He wants us to become disciples, and he wants us to start to live a resurrected life, even within this cursed condition. So if we're looking for the deal, ideal, when you start your study, go back to the beginning. You can learn from Yeshua's teaching. He looks beyond the reality of the present condition which is all at the mercy of sin, culture, tradition, politics, all that. And he says, if you want to find the actual truth, 
then go back to how the male and the female were created and designed to function before a curse. There's a message there. So in Yeshua's creation, he was there at the beginning. Male and female are both him and them. They're two yet one, one yet two. And so in ministry, I think the ideal is to build on that pattern. Do we live in a completely restored creation? No. We've got all sorts of stumbling blocks in a fallen world. It is still a cursed world. The whole world has not been saved yet. The whole world is not walking in resurrection life yet. But the spirit is striving to restore all things, and especially through the people of Adonai. And so if we can restore those complementary roles of male and female, like in the garden, then I think we're enabling the spirit to do the work it wants to do in the earth. Here's what Isaiah 51.1 says. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. And, And this is just for people pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord. It's not for anybody else. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Hmm. So who is him? Abraham or Sarah? Yes. Just like at the beginning, just like Yeshua said, go back to the beginning. Male and female created he them. They were to rule together. They had complementary roles as male and female, but they were one. And so Abraham was one, but he was two. Here's Sarah's blessing. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now compare this. Is we still getting these like counterbalance roles here? Here's Abraham, Genesis 17, four through six. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. So the the blessings are nearly identical. So if, if we agree that the blessings are nearly identical, and that the blessings are part of the process of overturning and overcoming the curse, then why should we be selective on who gets to keep being cursed? That's just something to think about. Male and female mother and father, you need both of these to fulfill the prophecy of Israel's role among the nations, as well as to bring the earth in subjection to the rule of Elohim. The rule was originally intended for male and female. Adonai didn't change his mind. He's simply working a longer plan. But once everything is restored, we don't expect the conditions to be different. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring forth goodness in the earth. And so now let's look at the long form of Isaiah 51 1. It says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Abraham's the rock, Sarah's the quarry. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Sion 
He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. So yeah, the curses, the waste places, the plan is to restore those things, to be blessed, to multiply, to bear fruit, to comfort the waste places, to take a wilderness, a desert, and make it into a garden of joy and gladness, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. So the the curses, do they still exist? Yes. But isn't it our job as believers to begin to improve from the realm of death? Once he has saved us from that realm, isn't it our job to begin this restoration? So we'll we'll stop here. Uzi's getting a little (laughs) bit out of shape here. But this article is is really funny. I mean, it's it's a little more lighthearted. I know it's a heavy subject. I know people like to argue over it. I, I prefer not to argue at this point in my life. But if you want a good giggle, I found this article back in October. It's in the Times of Israel. And the title of the article is, Then I Told Her I Would Rule Over Her. <laughs> and... Um, even though it's lighthearted, he makes a good point there, which is basically this point right here. That curse that entered in with the garden was a beginning point, not an end. Even after the flood, conditions improved. You know, the, the, the curse was not so heavy upon the earth. He says, I, I shall no more curse the earth because of you. He gave us a starting point when we fell out of the garden. But since then, it's been an effort. On, a, on the part of believers working in partnership with Elohim to begin that restoration so that people could understand the testimony of Yeshua and that he came to restore all things. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.